We might throw it open to the floor for questions. Yeah. If you've got a question, can you stick your hand up in the air? We'll do this for maybe 10 minutes, and I'll bring the mic over to you so we can Hard questions it. are good questions. So start, this guy's got a hard question. I'll try to make it hard. Uh, you said that there are a lot of Australians who believe in God, and that's, that's great, but I'm wondering what is their actual perception of God? Uh, are we talking about just a, a, some sort of higher power, a spiritual being? What sort of research? Yeah. And are they, they're not coming to churches... But are they going to other places, being attracted to Islam or sort of Eastern, things yeah. like that? So uh, yeah. what kind of perception of God are we actually trying to address in the population? Okay. I'm going to reveal my venerable age by trying to read a microprint here. We have a slide um, probably in the backup which will enable me to address that. What it says is... No, we don't. What it says is... Um, Fallen people do exactly what you'd expect, which is when they're in church, they, they share about 71% of the beliefs with their minister. The minister is 71% effective in getting them, this is big incumbent churches, to believe the things that all Christians do. Within a year of leaving church, they have an overlap in belief with the minister of the church of 56%. Within two years, 34%. What's going on? What's going on is that people are resurrecting their own gods which they loosely define as a social democratic god that means good and does good and pretty soon you'll face the question which is how can God who is good put up with evil, good and all powerful put up with evil and that question is coming from a false idol, it's coming from a redefined social democratic made up god um, that they now possess now the implication of that is extremely serious which is like reformed smokers ex-church attending Christians. Are there any South Africans in the room? Okay, I'm almost a South African. I spent most of my teenage years in... The one that he just left. He knew what was about to happen. (laughs) If you talk to South Africans about South Africa, they tell you that it's a life-threatening proposition to stay there. And they've come away. You see, people who live in Africa love Africa. Something about the big sky. Something about the colours, the way the sun rises, the sun sets. We love Africa. Well, I need to explain to you if I love Africa and you love Africa too, why I'm not there anymore. And the answer is, it's really, really dangerous. And you can't stay there because it's really, really dangerous. So those people who used to be are now extremely strong negative advocates. That's the same with people who used to go to church. We make up our God. Our God is not the God of Christianity. It's the God of social democracy. And then we use that God to chastise Christians. Thanks, God. Two sets. A faithful brother. Other questions? There's another one here? I'm um, making sense. I hope so. Uh, yeah, does it seem like um, the problem is in uh, the leadership not creating disciples that create disciples? Or is it the, like, how, I suppose, what's the best way to create disciples that create disciples? Is it in the leadership, first of all? Or Yeah. yeah. Um, we'll have an opportunity if we have time to explore that in a little bit more detail. How do you create an environment where disciple-making disciples is possible? I hope Andrew will come and support me in that discussion. But the fundamental problem is, uh, in its first instance, the way it presents to a, uh, to a leader is a diary problem. The little loop we'll take you through says this, and we can speed through it, but to answer your question, I need to give you a sense of it. When you arrive in a new church setting, it's probably not the most glamorous church in your diocese, You're a new young minister person given responsibility for working there. You want to serve God. You've been taught to teach and preach. 
You notice the teaching and preaching is not, not up to much, so you start teaching and preaching 20 hours a week. Write the sermon and deliver it. So you've committed half of a normal working week to deal with that issue. You notice the, there's not much pastoral care going on around here, so you get that organized 15 hours a week. So you're up to 30 hours, 35 hours a week, and we've not talked about discipling yet. You notice that the office isn't run very well and the organization's a schmozzle, and so you commit your time to managing that and talking to the diocese at the same time. You're one of those guys. Another 20 hours a week. So you're pretty soon up to mid-50s, which is a life-destroying proposition to you and your family, and you haven't done anything about discipling. So it's the apparatus of organization that sucks the life out of that proposition. It's also the fact that hidden in your church are large numbers of people who are in your church for the wrong reasons. See, they came when we were a secular church to a large extent. They've stayed in powerful positions for reasons that are often not good reasons. And we're in a war between evil and good. For sure, our churches have received their fair share of attention. And yet you depend on the revenue that's generated by those people. And if you, um, if you defy them and you cause problems with them, your revenue will go down. And if you're in a small career structure, you may not get another job. You'll end up being a school chaplain. That's hopefully a good thing to be. But you wanted to be a pastor to a church. And people won't ask you to do that again when they go and do the inquiry. They'll find that you upset people at church and didn't work very well. So it's really, really understandable how people receiving that proposition struggle to get the right job done. And that's another reason why I'm excited to talk to you all today. Yeah. I'll, I might throw over to Andrew now and he'll come up. Yeah. At last help. Somebody really knows what he's talking about. No, 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 no. So, so, what are we doing? I think I'm live on mic. <laughs> What I, I thought we might do, Andrew, um, is flick up a couple of thoughts that actually lead off, praise God, from that question, right question to lead us in, um, and just get you to talk to, to that. We all know you, Andrew, as a, a guy who will cringe as I say this, but a guy who started with a very small church and who's built a very large church. It's a very strange phenomenon. And what we'd like to do is explore why it's so difficult to be an effective leader, and I know you're an expert on that. Um, About the difficulty. And let's explore those challenges and difficulties and take that journey with Andrew a little bit. And I'll prompt with slides uh, as we go. Why is it so difficult? What can you tell us about that, Andrew? So we just kick up a couple of slides as we go, Guy. Uh, This is the first proposition, which is um, what Cole Marshall and his mate uh, Tony Payne would call the trellis, which is we're drawn to deal with an organisation that exists and as Christian men and women, we feel a responsibility to make sure that everything goes well in our church. So we say yes to everything that the organization asks of us. Now know that Satan is alive and well in that structure. Know that fallen man is alive and well in that structure. And know that you've been given a finite amount of time. So you are immediately being lined up for failure if you don't have the ability to say no to those things. Would you agree with that, Andrew? I, I think that's absolutely right. You've, you've got... People have often suggested that God's the God of infinite, we've got infinite resource, we ought to trust him. But in the circumstances of how he works his providential rule, he does it through finite, finite people who have finite time. There is a reality that when you start a church, start a church plant, you just don't have all the resources you need. You need to marshal what resource you've got and you need to be careful where you invest the resource largely, which is time, your time, 
where do you where do you invest that to give the biggest return uh, for the long haul? It's just a decision you've got to make. And every time you say yes to something, you are saying no to something else. So when I say yes to spending two hours having coffee with an old lady who's struggling, I've said no to spending that two hours doing something else and I can never get it back. And it's, it's interesting, as I hear that equation, I, I, I plead with you to understand that it's not a zero-sum game. It's not that the little old lady won't have a Christian person to spend time having coffee with her, but that may not be you. And it may be a matter of training and discipling somebody else to do that work. Very poor delegators, generally, uh, as a group. I, I do think in the early stages, actually, now all the way through my life in ministry, um, uh, delegation takes time. Yeah. And so when you start with nothing, uh, you know, you're getting a number of people coming to you with needs and all kinds of circumstances and pressures upon you, and you haven't got the time yet to have set up the delegation processes to get the person to the old lady you do need to make decisions about what you'll let go. You just can't meet every need. And I think Jesus in Mark chapter 1 is the perfect example of someone who says no. So he, um, you yeah. know, the crowds are coming to him to be healed, a very worthwhile thing to achieve, healing people, he could do it, but he turned away to go and preach in other cities because that's why he'd come. So he'd said no to pursue... And I don't doubt many were disappointed because he'd said no. Yeah. And we need to actually thicken up our skins and work out what to say no to and bear the cost and pain of that, which is considerable, to make sure we say yes to the right things. So are these just words, or are you actually marking and learning that proposition, which is if you're a person in this room that can't say no, then it is likely that if the laws of physics, which are God-ordained, actually have their way, your ministry will struggle. Yeah. So do you have the intention to say no you have the godliness, the God-centeredness to work out what it is you should say no to? Because if you don't, you need to confront that issue as an important starting point. One of the beauties of church planning is that you, you can start a church without all the incumbent structures that are in place, that are a classic for an incumbent church structure. So don't just start recreating those to create self-problems again. Yeah. Yeah. Think through it all. So flick on. So that's a resolution. Let's flick on to the next slide. You see, people who run incumbent churches work very, very long weeks. Um, they spend about uh, 12 hours on average writing sermons. Some spend more, 15 hours or more. They spend nine hours delivering sermons and being not seen to rush out of the service after the service. So they've got 12 plus nine, we're over 20. Uh, they spend a lot of time in admin because they haven't had time to organize the proposition. And so they're all the time ad hoc, trying to sort things out, trying to sort out politics and other things which are designed to eat up their time. They spend time in pastoral and with small groups, uh, working really hard. And I might just click to the next slide and then ask you, perhaps the one after that. And as a result, they become enormously stressed people. The red stuff up there is setting directions and leadership style. When things stop working well, you actually start to question your own leadership style. You realize that actually you weren't taught to be a church leader. When you were in theological college, you were taught to be a Bible reader and teacher. All of the research shows you weren't taught to be a leader. There are some extraordinary individuals who are born leaders. They try with power and persuasion to tell us what's made them great leaders. They can't help us. We're ordinary people. 
They actually don't know why they're great leaders. They've been gifted in a way they've tried to rationalize and they just confuse the rest of us as we try to follow them around and understand. So you've been given very little leadership help and support. Resolution number two, we need to work out within this group what an effective leader looks like. And they don't all look the same because we're all gifted in different ways. But how can we, as, how can we lead effectively in a small church environment? Because if we don't, you're going to go to borderline burnout. You will not be a good disciple, a good example of Christian discipleship. You'll start neglecting your Bible reading and your time of prayer, the most important thing that you can do. By the way, there's an enormously tight correlation between the amount of time that a leader spends in prayer and the, and the rate at which his congregation grows. Science proves that if you spend much time in prayer, it also shows how disappointingly little time leaders can spend in prayer and how those leaders who spend little time in prayer have declining congregations. I love that anecdote from Hudson Taylor in China. He's got 10 missionary stations. He goes home to the home mission and he says, you need to find people to pray because we're not getting anywhere with our 10 mission stations. In the next three years, before he goes home on a furlough, seven of those stations explode enormously successful. When he gets home, he says, thank you for the prayer and, uh, and thank you so much. But we had three mission stations that didn't succeed. And they said, ah, oh, that's because we only found seven prayers. That's a true story. It is powerful stuff. And if the minister stops praying, then God help the rest of them because they're modeling their lives on him. God is listening to his prayers and supplications. Sir, borderline burnout for some of these guys, lost direction, Crowded diary. Feel familiar? Or am I overstating it? <laughs> yeah, last 15, 20 years of my life, pretty much for me. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> Got any advice for us? What's that? Um, you look so fresh and well. <laughs> I look fresh and well. You're the first one who said that. But, um, <laughs> I, look, I, two things. Um, uh, learn to manage, learn to say no, learn to work out strategically what you invest your time in, but learn to toughen up. I, I think there's a little bit of we need to help each other suck it up and work out church planning's hard, which is why you need to go through a recruiting process, an assessment process to see whether your personal life and your marriage and family can sustain the kind of early pressures that will be brought to bear because you've got nothing. And you've got to actually... You, when you've got nothing... You, hmm. you know, I, I had to do all the folding of bulletins if I wanted to run a platform ministry. I had to do all the ringing of newcomers if I wanted to get new people connected into church. I had to do it all. Um, and those early years were the hardest times of our lives, although I feel like I've slipped back into it again. But, it, it, yeah, we, there's a sense in which we need to help guys realise that they can easily kid themselves they're working hard when they're not. That's the nature of ministry. Or you can easily slip into being a very unhealthy workaholic and needs to be pulled back. But we just need to help each other in all of those processes and be ready to man up in it all. And the, the substrate, it seems to me, my limited experience talking in the presence of much more experienced people, the substrate that supports that, the culture on which that is grown, is a culture of Bible reading, prayer, and sharing with the other people of God, sharing your most painful, your most significant concerns, and encouraging that culture, because we carry our burdens together. Yeah. Look, I was very blessed, and that's why we've started, we've tried to formalise the process that we, most of us have enjoyed, we're wanting to pass it on. I was very blessed with a group of men uh, and and women as well, but with Cathy, but, you know, someone like a gym, uh, a group of men who, our others, who would contact me somewhat regularly, and I had someone that I could, you know, vent with, 
uh, and then get back into it. Um, doing it on your own with none of those support structures is very, very hard because it's hard work. Uh, and so to create that mentoring uh, peer group structure is shown to facilitate your ability to keep on track, keep on task, keep saying no to the right things and be able to keep manning up. It's very healthy, helpful. So resolution number three. Number one was power of saying no. Number two is managing your diary as a result of that. So you have place for God, time for God, time to live a full Christian life. And number three, as you say, is finding a mentor mm. and mentoring people to take the pain. And peer group. And peer group. So it's, it's not just the formal mentor structure. It's actually connecting with others in like circumstance and firing off each other. I think that's powerful and helpful. Great. Guy? Move on past that. Ah, okay. Time for some more resolutions and thoughts. You see, we said it was very simple what we're trying to do is create disciple-making disciples to make that a task so that we can do the people part of it uh, under God. We need to break it down. It is actually a sequence. Um, my erstwhile partner is trained as an engineer. It's not always helpful, but it's extraordinarily helpful if you want to organise a takeover or an acquisition or a changed, uh, changed proposition. And we need to be thinking a little bit along those lines as we begin to break down how we organize our people to deliver progression for our members. I know this is something you regard as very important. I think if there's a single secret, the, the great secret that has evaded the incumbent church, it lies here, which is we've forgotten that if individuals in our church are not growing, our church is not growing. The number one priority is growing individuals in our church the church itself as a community will grow automatically as a result of that. But any shared perspectives on that? If... Oh, I, I think that's totally right. And the way we, we've not forgotten it at the level of we need to grow people material, into maturity. We've not forgotten that. What we've forgotten and perhaps never learned was that to help people grow in maturity, you need to put in place processes and steps and resource each step. Uh, and it's my experience has been... Uh, for, well, my experience, and as I talk with men in ministry, you, you, by virtue of all the diary pressures, the energy required to get one of those steps fired and energised and moving is more than I can give it with everything else I'm doing. So if I don't deliberately find ways to resource each step, which won't be me then we won't get the heat and energy into each step to make each step move along in a person's life and then in multiples of people and so on. Um, so we just tip to the next slide and I think I'll ask you to expand on, on that thought and on that point. Um, well, perhaps just before we go there, one of the remarkable things... Go to that slide, next slide. One of the remarkable things about this is it does work the way you'd expect. We know from the research that people who are growing are more productive Christians on every dimension of their lives. So they uh, invite more non-church people to church, they give more money, and they are at ease with sharing their, their faith with others. So to give a sense of that, if you had a church which had no real growth, 80% of the people not really growing, they might be giving 9% or 10% at the tithing level, just as an indicator. If you go to a church which is, uh, where there is much growth, the amount of giving will almost triple as a result of the fact that people are gripped by the gospel and are growing. It's a natural fruit of the outcomes. So that, that verse in Colossians 1.6, 
Colossians 1.6, Colossians 1.4, where we hear about bearing fruit and growing. And this is exactly how we see it working. Mm. Bearing fruit and growing. So often we try to reverse that equation. We try to grow and bear fruit. That's a horrible way to treat God's truth, right? We need to bear fruit individually and as an organization of individuals, and then we grow. And if we get those two things around the wrong way, it's a, it's a terrible travesty and it doesn't go anywhere. By the way, Christian circles have great, particularly evangelical Christian circles, hate programs and process. I shuddered when you said process. And the reason that we hate those things is that normally what we do is we have well-meaning ministers who are gripped by the need to serve God in their own strength, who take hold of a church which isn't healthy, <coughs> graft onto it a massive and ambitious program which is staffed by people that are partly healthy, temporally healthy, and we burn them out driving a program which falls over and produces nothing. So we're just building a house on sand again and again until we've used up all our good resources and then they move to another church and sit quietly in a back pew somewhere and, uh, and contemplate their brokenness. So wrong programs by getting the wrong sequence. Just to flick to the next slide, Guy, and then you'll hear from, uh, from uh, Andrew on how his organization works. So he's taken that orientation and... Uh, He's now looking at how do you organize around that. He's put M in front of every word. Just confusing. <laughs> which Tim Apparently hates. that's really powerful. Which t- well, I haven't, but so, uh, others have, and we've found it very helpful. So that would be another resolution. If you're going to do anything, M, M in front of the words. And we've got Cs in other words as well. We'll give you those ones. Do, so you want me just to explain? Yes, what, please. What how okay. does it work? The, um, we, uh, we, we took very seriously very early on the recognition that people move through a process of growth. We wanted to grow people. We were there to actually see people mature and be discipled. And so we wanted to step them along into full maturity. We, we owned the fact that that wouldn't happen unless considerable investment of energy was given into each step of the process. Uh, and so identifying that process, which others have done. I mean, Rick Warren's um, M structure has been very helpful for us. We've, we've tweaked it and tailored and so on. We've done something that hasn't been done in Saddleback in my conversations with them anyway. But, and so we, we've sought to resource each area of that end. Uh, we figured the very beginning part, as we started with just one church plant, just one group of people, the first step was to get them fired up in their understanding and appreciation of the gospel, that they'd start to mature in the word, uh, in their grasp of the kingdom, to live for the kingdom. So we invested heavily in that middle M, the maturing of people. Uh, we only had one service, and yep, we invested there. We put my first staff member was a commitment to that point. So when we started the church, I ran all the maturing processes, invested all. I said no to, I said no to um, uh, teaching scripture in school. I said no to uh, doing local charity work. I, I said no to uh, ministers fraternal. St- I said no to all kinds of stuff to make sure that uh, we would have in 10 years' time the ability to do all of that with much more resource. And so we invested heavily staffing there. We said no to youth group ministries. I didn't employ any staff in youth because I knew that that wouldn't build an engine for us to return much for a long time. We now invest very heavily in youth ministry because we've got the resource to do it. And so anyway, we we powered into that uh, maturity area um, and then I worked very hard on the mission. Uh, So we we focused on those two M's heavily uh, to begin getting a flow of people towards us and then we stepped where we did two things. We stepped, we added another strata, another congregation. Um, we started with an, a, mo- a morning service, then a night service, 
and we flowed those M works into the next strata. We call it a strata instead of a congregation. Um, and then we added lay volunteer people into the each other M spot. And I worked with them, so I would meet with them instead of doing all this other stuff, I'd meet with them to get that area firing uh, and then build resource into it. And as each area started to fire, we began to see, I think Tim's described it, he said, oh, it sounds like a combine harvester. It was this sense in which as each area started to fire up, people were getting matured. There were processes and ways in which they were getting fired up for mission, so mission was beginning to happen. And people were being drawn to us, to the magnification work and the membership work, which was starting to catch new people and incorporate them in, and they were starting to get moved through into this process of being matured, missioning back out again. Um, and then we added another strata, another service, uh, and we resourced someone to look after the M work in that strata. And then we've just been adding strata <laughs> and building up the teams in each M area so that now there's each circle is there's a person who's responsible for the work in all of those spots. And that's where we've been heading. It's just very, very interesting. I think if we've spent time on nothing else today than this slide and thinking about the implications for you, I think that would be powerful. You see, the traditional incumbent approach is one minister over lots of congregations, lots of time spent preparing sermons, and then desperately running around doing an inadequate job and everything else. It will fail. It's only a matter of time before that python runs out of pigs and, and the back end of the python plays out. It will fail. It will fail. It'll destroy the minister's life. It'll probably destroy his family's life. They will not have time to invest in being with God and they'll, uh, they'll overheat. This turns it around and tries it from another angle. So yeah, yeah. That's the, we, we, we've, we have deliberately worked hard to not have um, the... You'll notice how the M's are at the top for us and the strata management leadership is down the side. That's been a very deliberate policy and we fight to keep that orientation because it ensures that the thing that drives our church isn't congregational pastoring, it's purpose-driven desire to see outcomes in each of these M areas across all of our work. Um, and that provides scale. It, it does all kinds of advantages for us. Yeah. Might just click back two slides, Guy, see if we can see the orientation. And one more back. One more. Um, this is a very complex slide, so the engineers will enjoy it. Everybody else just hear the words I say. If you were a person working 58.5 um, hours in a traditional structure with the orientation being vertical, you'd spend a total of 15 hours preparing your sermon, which is five equivalent for each of the services spread across those. You get some scale. You get two and a half hours of services with each of those service propositions, and you'd be left then with a balance of your week to spend in the way that we show. You'd need nearly 100 people to support your proposition. And when you stepped off from there to scale it, every time you add a full-time ministry resource house, you could be looking at $100,000, $110,000 worth of opportunity cost in a system where you're systematically disempowering the people who are giving you the money to do it. So that's why traditional churches always have this terrible struggle, which is their cost function is sawtoothed, Huge step-ups, $110,000 bets on new capacity before you can afford it with increasingly disenfranchised people who don't really want to pay for that because this is the 20th year they've been told they're 20% behind budget. If you fill that in with part-time resources, now click on to Andrew's slide, that enables you to pursue a, more, a smoother power curve because you're feeding resources in that are not paid but are getting enormous amount of uh, 
benefit from doing it. Volunteers, up to maybe eight, ten hours a week. Very good thing to be asking them to do. Uh, Part-timers, where you may need to help them with a little bit of money in that sort of 12 hours, 16 hours, 18 hours window. And then, the theory at least, is that you'll have uh, the capacity to hire full-time when you need it. Can I, yeah, let me just... One other thing I think is... I, I believe is critical is not to give jobs... Not to give people a task to do, either whether you employ or put a volunteer in a position like that. So you, you don't say, we need someone to run the Sunday school. Can you run the Sunday school? We need someone to run the youth group. Can you run the youth group? Don't, don't, we need someone to look after growth groups. Can you run the growth groups? When you do that... You're effectively undermining your ability to envisage people to get energy and passion for a bigger work than just running a ministry. And what we've sought to do in each of these situations as we've brought volunteers, part-timers, full-timers, into each position is say, your task... Actually, the whole giving of the, the task has been envisaging about we want to see transformation of life here through a number of particular tasks... You might find other tasks to achieve it better, but we're actually about the transformation of life. And so every job we give, if you like, is done in the context of that um, drive and energy and firing for changing lives. And it's, it empowers people, and you find people who are volunteers will give you much more than you ever imagined if you're not just giving them a job. Um, when we started on the Central Coast we were told that you'll never go anywhere from people who are pastoring churches there because everyone commutes to Sydney. They've got, they're very time poor. They're spending so long on the train. And, and what we've found, we've had no... We're always struggling to get people to do ministry. Uh, but what we found was that people weren't giving time to ministry because they weren't captured by the power of changing lives, the fact that it was working and it was worth giving my 15 hours a week to... And once you transformed all of that, we, we've got people all over the place giving 20 hours a week, volunteer. Um, we actually have a thing we... Anyway, we won't keep going. If, if I took one of those things, like uh, when you're having a meeting with the membership guy, as a business person, I'm, I'm thinking, is that meeting uh, how many people are coming in through the service? Are we seeing as many as we, we've seen recently? What's breaking down in terms of my ability to bring people into membership? Are you actually talking about the mechanics of ministry in between those interfaces? Secondarily, yeah, right. we always do. So, but primarily, my meetings with senior staff in all of that area, and certainly was the case with volunteers in each of these areas, was just what we're trying to do here is... Here is the scripture presentation of where God's taking people to present everyone maturing Christ. This area is desperately important because it will achieve this part of that process. And if we work it well, we'll see the Central Coast wonder Christ. So that was, I think that was my mantra every conversation. And then move on, okay, how well are we doing? What's the processes? Let's give hard facts to this. Let's not just talk anecdotal. Let's, are you keeping track? How can we best? All of that. So, sounds too good to be true, Andrew. Yeah. You, you know, we can see the problem. We spent time on it with the incumbent church and see how they got into that strife. And we can see the enormous challenges and empathise with them of reinventing from the inside out. We see the power of a group like this. We accept the notion of this discipleship thing. I think that suits most of us. It makes sense to organise a ministry along discipleship lines. It seems to have incredible 
performance, to use a business term, but a performance resilience. Because once you've organized along those lines, people have got a sense of purpose. You can scale it. You can add pieces to it. And some of those traditional barriers, you know, the 122, the 232, the 515, mm. all that kind of stuff go mm. away. Mm. Is it, are we hearing this right? Is, where's the big problem here? What's the, what's the hidden truth? Come on, you can share with us. Yeah, I'll give you the hidden truth. Why doesn't this really work? <laughs> the hidden truth is that it, it well, the hidden truth. Uh, one of the complexities with what we're doing is that you move away from classic line management, command control structures. Mm. Um, if I'm sorry to weigh into your world, yeah, sure. but uh, you, you, you move you move away from the simple pastor in charge of a group of people who has someone under him who directs him and directs him and directs him, kind of a line structure, into what's known in the business world as a matrix. Now we didn't know it was a matrix until we've been calling it matrix for three years, and then someone said, "You know, that's business matrix," and I said, "What?" And there's a whole bunch of literature out there about yeah. matrix management. And uh, it's been very helpful to read. But what the, the big complexity with this is that you don't have a line management. What you have is each circle in that matrix has two bosses. So he reports to the membership senior M head and also to the strata or... Fo we call them a focus leader, not a, not a pastor, a, a congregational pastor, a focus head. So he's under two bosses which brings a complexity of management and leadership issues to it that you don't get typically in congregationally governed structures. But what we've found is that as we've worked into that process together, it's created an incredible um, interrelationship of uh, engaging with uh, consultation, discussion, rather than command, do this. And Daniel lives in it. So Daniel's one of our focus leaders. He focus leads our night service. He has five M's that he manages and has to actually work together with five senior M who run each of those guys. Is it worth sharing some absolutely. of that? Absolutely. That's in the spirit of what we're doing, I think. That's absolutely what we want to do. I, don't, do you, look, Does it really I could talk all day about this stuff if you want to come up. Do you, do you want to just... Yeah. What's your comment on how that's worked for you? Now, you've come into it as a young guy's come up through the congregation. You're a punk amongst us, and we always used to be driven nuts by you. And now you're running the place. So do you want to um, tell us how it's worked for you? Yeah, I think it is, there's a... There is this inbuilt tension which creates conflict. Like it, it'll always generate conflict when the focus leader wants to see the whole congregation moving in a certain way and the M leader wants to see the whole of church moving in a certain way and sometimes those two things are at odds because... Let, let me just yep. explain that. The, the M guy is trying to build scalability so we get efficiencies which means he tends towards wanting to make all the processes the same across all the services, right. whereas the focus leader is wanting to get deeper penetration into that subculture that we're seeking to reach. And because he's wanting to get deeper penetration, he's wanting to tailor all our processes to make them particularly suit that demographic, that subculture, which means you've immediately got attention. That's right. So you might have an M leader who sees the best thing to get as many people at EV Church uh, trained in theology is to run a th Monday night theological course. And so that's what we're going to do. That's what we're going to put our energy into. But as the night EV focus leader, I might think that's actually not the most helpful thing for our congregational guys to mature. And so I'll be pushing the night EV maturity guide to put his energy somewhere else. 
But the maturity leader will be telling that same person, no, 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 you should be giving your time to the Monday night thing. So it creates this, straight away it creates conflict. But what it's actually meant, this is what happens with all conflict, it's led to creativity. Because we've had to think, we had to rethink how we do that Monday night thing would have been, if, it was, if there was no focus leaders, it would have looked a certain way. But because you have the input of the focus leaders, that Monday night thing is tailored to meet more groups of people in a different, slightly more nuanced way than it would have been otherwise. And, and our night AV guys get that they're part of a bigger thing. So every, every decision that you make has all this conflict around it and then comes out better than it would have before. What I might say is just, just stay, stay there for a second. Um, when we were running a consulting firm, which is a service organisation which seeks to pursue high standards, um, we had the experience, praise God, uh, although I didn't know it at the time, of growing that organisation by 40% per annum for 20 years. So every year, half the people in the organisation hadn't done what they were being paid by clients to do. So we had to learn to teach people and create productivity and accountability. And we did it through a dual allocation structure. You remember this, Simon, that what we found when we had people allocated to two different leaders was enormous amount of productivity was generated by that because both leaders wanted to get their pound of flesh and make sure that it happened and it was going to be good. But another thing that we never expected occurred, which is a tremendous sort of cultural honesty because if you were working for Andrew and for me and we're each talking to you and want you to get, do great things for my side of the thing and he's trying to do great things for his side, actually what it forces us to both be is effective managers. Because if we're not being effective, our proposition dries up. Yeah. The other proposition begins to dominate. That's so exactly what's happening. That's it, exactly it's what's creates happening. intellectual yeah. honesty across the whole organisation. Yeah. And the other thing it's helped us do too is realise in every church I've ever been in, as I look back now, we've had this, you actually do have this exact dynamic happening, but it's been unspoken and unexplored and unarticulated. So you, you, you never actually clarify exactly how to make it work better, yeah. whereas this has forced us to make it work better. Yeah. And it, it also forces ownership because uh, the, each person in the whole matrix is connected with stuff happening everywhere else in the matrix. And so um, for you know, one person to think, I want my area to win, it actually involves other areas winning as well. And so there's throughout the whole organisation, there's more united ownership, rather than siloing in areas that I'm just concerned with maturity and I'm just concerned. The maturity pastor is praying for what's happening at Night AV or is praying for what's happening in membership because everything's connected. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, so oh, re rephrase it quickly, tell me if I've got it. As it's grown, does that mean the top M guy spends less time with the people and more time with the circle, the guys in each matrix position. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's, that's exactly what happens. But that's, if you're planning a church, that's exactly what is happening to you by virtue of any structural growth that will happen. And if you don't deliberately appreciate that and so manage for it, what will end up happening is that you'll just get absorbed not in any people at all, but just in structures. And so we need to help each other. If we're going to grow ministries beyond my capacity, which is probably, you know, let's say each of us can do 100 people, 
Um, if I want that 100 people to become effective and reach 10,000 people, then I need to learn how to become a... Have you heard the language rancher, not shepherd? Very helpful thing I picked up years and years ago that we're trained to be shepherds, we're trained to actually look after the needs pastorally of people and perhaps disciple people. Um, if you run as a shepherd, you can run 100 people and your ministry will grow. No, it'll hit a ceiling and you'll have to plant a new church with a group of people doing exactly the same thing with all the cost involved in that. But if you learn to actually become someone who ranches, that is someone who um, raises up people who do various parts of your ministry and you invest your life in them and begin to disciple and train them, not just in their growth spiritually, but their understanding of how we're going to reach this area and mobilise together to do it. If you invest them, you'll be stepping back and becoming a rancher. You'll do less coalface stuff. I still do lots of coalface stuff because I, I'm in a war and I want to shoot enemy. You know, I, don't want to, I want to be part of doing that. But I have to limit how much I do so can I invest in people to grow the work. You just have to deal with that. Now, that's hard for some of us. Uh, my experience has been that some guys find that tr- transition from leading others and then leading others who lead others very hard to go. For me, it was every two years I went through a whole lot of grief because I stopped being what I came into the work to be and I had to transition to another kind of person and then another kind of person. And it was very, very hard. It was very, it was an emotional process for me. Um, but I wanted to reach the Central Coast and not just pastor 100 people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we, started to, we started to talk about church plants and what that's going to look like as we, we start. Um, Pete Hughes. Where are you, Pete? Yeah, Pete's going to come up and talk about some of this research stuff and how it affects us as mm. planters. Actually, uh, like I know we're close to lunch, so I actually wanted to ask Tim a question because um, yeah. I've got the floor and I can do that now. Yeah. Uh, you, you, a lot of your research has been about uh, incumbent churches and established churches. Uh, can I ask you the question, because this is an important question for us to work out, do you think it's better for us to fix the churches that we've got established or should we be aiming to plant churches? Uh, that's a good question. Um, <clears throat> the, the answer is belts and braces. And I'll show you a little bit, um, a slide later, where I'll make that explicit. But you can imagine that to take an incumbent church, which is with all the challenges that it has, but all the power and resource it has, and to find a way of morphing that into a more effective incumbent church is an enormously rewarding and exciting proposition. And it's probably the proposition that most church workers will have to come to terms with. At the same time, there will be, as I've described as God's embassies, God's embassies in particular suburbs or a lack of God's embassies in particular suburbs where that morphing process is not occurring and where there are huge numbers of people whose life in eternity is, is exposed because they're not given an opportunity to attend a living, word-driven, proclaiming, people-based, praying church. And so church planting, I think, is enormously important in supplementing the effort I was to use military terms, I liked your battle terminology earlier, Andrew. I'd say where we find that we've got a particular bunker which we can't get the enemy out of, then we need to put a machine gun nest right next to it. And uh, we need to be hard about that. And we need to go into places where we think that the mission is not being fully utilized or fully served. 
and cannot be because of the obstructions that are there as a priority. We need to go into other places where the mission isn't being represented at all. And then we have our whole suite of unique problems as, in, as planting churches. And we shouldn't be arrogant about that. We need to be very, very humble and very challenged by what we're trying to do, which is really hard. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, thank you. We're going to do both. Yeah. And as complimentary as possible, but don't get hung up on trying to make it perfectly complimentary or we'll never get the job done. Yeah, sure. Um, So I've been asked to talk just briefly about how some of this research has affected my work. I I live in Sydney. Uh, I love Sydney. I know I'm in Melbourne, but I love Sydney. Uh, And um, there were a couple of questions that came up and I I, I thought I'll just briefly touch on one thing that's really uh, affected the way I do things. the initial research that Tim presented to us was a lot to do with how people think of church. Uh, and I think, I can't remember, I think it was Mikey or something asked the question, oh, but it, that doesn't seem to be my experience. Um, we, we've done a lot of, when we started our church uh, in the northwest of, New, of uh, Sydney, we, um, uh, we spent a lot of time actually talking to people about church. Uh, and we're about to actually go back and do that research again because one of the things that we've worked out is that. Um, you do your research, when you go to plant a church, you do all your research, you know, you, you, you do your NSL study and your, uh, all the other bits and pieces, but the whole thing changes every couple of years. Uh, I don't know what it's like in Melbourne, in Sydney, I think it's something like 40% of the population of Australia will live in Sydney at some point in their life, and so the population of Sydney is just turning over all the time, uh, and that means that things are changing. And so what we do is we, we go back and we ask the question, what, and, and we, we ask the question about church, and that, for me, has led to a whole bunch of really brilliant evangelistic conversations. Uh, because when I go to, I don't know about you, but when I talk to people about Jesus, uh, I've got biblical Jesus in my mind. They've usually got some weird, you know, spin Jesus in their mind. And we're not even talking about the same Jesus. And it usually takes, you know, three quarters of the conversation to work out we were not actually on the same page. But church is a, a, a concrete experience. So I want to talk about Jesus, but I lead to it. And what this research actually says is, there's, there's the spin of what people are saying about church. Um, there's actually what I want to say is the gospel and the reality of where I want people to be. And s- people are sort of somewhere in the middle. And so this sort of research is actually very helpful for us to kind of go, now, people are saying this about church, but what do you actually think about church? Uh, and I found that really helpful. So to take it from that, that research stage and put it into practice in that, that particular kind of aspect, I think is really, really helpful. Um, one of the other things that I found helpful is, um, Guy, I don't know whether we can get uh, slide uh, 23 up, if that's a possibility, but just in terms of uh, when I went through this research, particularly with guys, working out how we work out our timetable, I don't know about you, but I noticed up in the top, that corner up there, the outreach corner, very, very small. Um, and I think one of the things that I've noticed is that when I'm, when I'm praying, the church is growing, that's what we've already said, uh, what I've also noticed is when I'm actually doing personal evangelism, people in my congregation are doing it as well, in my church are doing it as well, right? And I don't just mean running the courses, and I don't just mean talking to people, and I don't just mean speaking the gospel from the front, I do all of those things as well, but I actually go, right, who are the people that I am getting to know who don't know Jesus, and going, and, and I, I had a guy ring me up uh, from another church, he said, oh, there's this, this guy who, um, he actually got he got run over by this girl and um, he said, look, uh, he's, in, he's in the hospital, um, would you mind going to visit him? He's not a Christian, would you mind going to visit him and tell him the gospel? And I'm kind of going, yeah, like, you know, that's what I do. I'm kind of going, why are you not doing it? But anyway. Um, 
And uh, I'm going, yeah, so he's now, he's now my guy. I, he's the guy I'm chasing up. He's the guy I'm following. He's the guy I want to tell the gospel to. He's the guy I'm going to go and visit when he gets back home. I'm going to, and so that, that it's, and, and I go, that is hard work. But that's what I'm asking my people to do. And so I want to be able to do what I ask. You can't do everything. You've got to say no. I've, I think having the list of, uh, the, there's the to-do list that you've got. I think the most valuable list is the, the don't-do list, the list that you don't do. So I don't read blogs. Sorry if you blog, I don't read them. Um, I, I don't meet, I only spend one hour a week meeting with other ministers in the area. I don't do all the fraternal, you know, things. Uh, I don't go to a lot of conferences. This is one of the few conferences I go to. So there's a lot of don'ts do's I do. And what I do is I invest my, my energy into disciple making and into outreach because they're the ones I think we actually need to invest in. But yeah, I don't want to spend a lot more time talking because I know we're coming to, to lunch. But um, couple of, yeah, I think there's a couple of pieces of information I think might be helpful to share just in, in the context of that, because you've triggered some thoughts uh, there that might be helpful. Guy, I would love to get, I think, the next slide after the, um, the one that Andrew talked to uh, would be helpful, because it'll give me an opportunity just to talk to a couple of other things. Yes. One of the questions is, if you had that healthy gospel society organized in the way that Andrew was talking about, what would you challenge people to do, which is, Peter, very much coming to your questions about what you go out and do. And what we found through the research is that bottom left-hand side of that chart, you can do nothing unless you're strongly emphasizing membership, maturity, and ministry. If the core of your proposition isn't organized to create disciple-making disciples, you have nothing. You'll have a program that will fall over. So bottom left kind of behavior, fundamental. What I'm not saying is just stay there and spend all your time on membership, maturity, and ministry, and wait until you're great before you go out and do anything else, because people are visiting you all the time. And so magnification, which is, I take it, the process of interfacing between those people who are in the church and the new arrival people, uh, becomes very, very important as a way of interfacing. And then finally, mission, uh, reaching out to others, transitioning, relocating, and inviting. Now, those little funny little... uh, plus one X's and so on in there, are research-derived indicators for how powerful those could be to a normal church. So if you persuaded 30% of the people who don't come to your church regularly but do come to come more regularly, you would double the size of the membership of your church. You would double the resources available. You double the size. You'd be famous for doubling the size of your church in three months. You could f- persuade a way, find a way to persuade 30% of the people who come irregularly to come regularly. If your teaching could make it seem important enough to come regularly rather than irregularly, you double the size of your church. That creates momentum and excitement. Magnification. If you could persuade 20% only of those who haven't decided to come more frequently, so we haven't double counted, but who are coming to your church and visiting to stay, you'd double the size of your church. Your church is an average of 220 people in Sydney. You get another 220 people within whatever time frame it took to persuade 20% of the visitors, regular visitors, not Christmas and Easter, to stay. Double it again. And if you, um, if you began to grapple with some of the other propositions, so transition, you mentioned it, Peter, 36% of Sydney-siders move home every five years. 36% of Sydney-siders move home every five years. In Manly, 57% of the people move every five years. as a dormitory town. And what that means is that 36% of your members 
statistically, will leave in the next five years. And you have to replace them with another 36%. So the question is, what behaviours go around that? What are you doing to make sure that people are leaving your church or ending up in another good church? 16% of Anglicans, for example, leave and go to Pentecostal and Assembly of God churches. When? At the point at which they move house. Because we're doing nothing at all to introduce them to the very good Anglican church which is in their suburb. They just drive off. And as a business person, that's quite challenging because when they drive off, $25,000 worth of net present value leaves them the car. (laughs) If they're very low providing, not particularly uh, gripped Anglicans, giving Anglican-style things. So $25,000 drives off in the car to somebody else's church. We don't know, we don't care. And by the way, there are people moving into your suburb. So 36% moving. Um, Invitations, a staggering proposition, which I put the slide up on, and I realise we're up against lunch. Guy, is it 31? No, I have to go forward, I think. This is a tiny number here. Can you flick forward to the invitation slide? It's a few slides on. Flick forward. There, stop, back. Um, If you invite somebody to go to church, 16% of the people invited who are not churchgoers will say yes. Another 32% might say yes, which would suggest if you taught people to invite people elegantly to come to church, 48% of people would come, which gives you nearly one in two shot. Bootlegs and Baptists, we're all too afraid. They're not going to say no, they're going to be offended. They're not. They're seeking God. They're looking for God. They haven't found him in our churches. 48% will say yes. And staggeringly, 3 plus 9 plus 14 might agree to stay permanently if they came. At the first question, they might agree to stay permanently. So you've got a one in two chance that they will... uh, Uh, that they will come to church if you ask them. You've got a one in four chance that the person who said yes will stay. So my suggestion would be that you do a little more asking because that could have a profound effect on your outcome. Don't be afraid, just ask. The worst that can happen is they say no. Normally they won't say no rudely. If they do say no rudely, then take energy from that. It's exciting. Um, (laughs) You've done statistically with the one who's going to be rude and probability is the next one won't be. So invite, deal with relocation, uh, make sure that you're, uh, you're being invitational to people who come to your church in huge droves. We could spend a whole morning on that. But above all, make sure that you're making disciples, making disciples. And thank you very much for listening. Uh,